0: Welcome to Seven
1: Heads, Ten Horns, with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Hi, welcome back to the internet's only podcast, History of the Devil, Seven Heads, Ten Horns. I'm Klaus Yoder, and with me today is my dear partner in heresy, Travis Stevens. Travis, how are you doing today?
0: Very excited to be here, as always. Um, Super excited we get to do some kind of extension of our conversation on Neoplatonism. So it it was all for a reason. All of that work in the trenches that we did, we're going somewhere with that, Klaus.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's going to be with us for a long time. Because I think especially as we get into like mysticism in the Middle Ages and even like more normy church doctrine, I think Neoplatonism is going to be with us informing the methods and secrets of those things uh, throughout the whole way. So, yeah, but yeah, we're, we're sort of continuing onward with uh, a discussion of Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. And I think that like, this book is nice because it really does bridge the neoplat- Neoplatonic discussion we had last time. But it also seems like so plugged into the Middle Ages with things like, you know, like the Wheel of Fortune or Dame Fortune, these symbols I know like from my studies, like you see the wheel of fortune symbol a lot and just, and just like the sort of influence it had being. Oh yeah. Translated. Shout out to Vanna
0: White and Pat Sajak, by the way. Yes.
1: Yes. Profound. You're right. Yeah. It's, it's most important uh, recipient of, of cultural influence, right? Uh, the wheel of fortune Pat and, and Vanna um, for sure. So why don't you like just get us started with a little bit of insight into what we know about uh boethius's biography travis
0: sure happy to so first of all i think his full name deserves to be uh butchered by me um so it's Ancius manlius like i i am not even making this up y'all Ancius manlius severinus boethius uh who was born right around the fall of Rome, so about 475, maybe just slightly before the fall of Rome, um, as traditional dating, uh, and died mm, somewhere around 526 of the Common Era. Theodoric was the Ostrogoth ruler of Rome, um, probably mm-hmm. super excited that he had just taken it, right? And he pretty much let the aristocrats keep aristocrating. So, that allowed our our hero for the day, Boethius, to get a pretty fancy Greek education, um, where he read among, you know, he had the a, a classic education, uh, which of course included philosophy. But that's where he certainly was going to make his name. Like the rest of the Roman aristocracy of his time, he was a Nicene Christian, whereas their Ostrogoth rulers were a different variety of Christians. They were Aryans, um, whom, you know, if we were old school, we'd be like, you know, heretics, the Aryan <laughs> heretics. Yeah. So uh, Boethius spent his time philosophizing, uh, writing and reading, uh, primarily in the field of logic, though that's not really what he is famous for, uh, right? He is famous for this text that we're going to be talking about, where he ta- tackles some much broader issues, including theological issues. Um, but from the perspective of philosophy, as we will see. Uh, He ends up becoming Theodoric's Master of Offices. I have no idea what that title actually means, but it was some sort of government official, um, and it doesn't actually turn out so well. Oh, but Klaus knows a little bit about this job, apparently. Um, Being Master of Offices was important because it was crucial to have a Roman's Roman, as an intermediary between the Roman establishment, and that is the Senate, the patrician families, and the Ostrogoth king. So a bit of a go-between, if you will, culturally speaking, someone who truly had the, the blue blood to do this role. Boethius's career and life were, however, put in jeopardy when he stood up for a Roman senator, um, Albinus. Mm. Sorry, I'm thinking about something else. Who? Albinus reminds me of Harry Potter, Albus Dumbledore, <laughs> Albus Dumbledore. <laughs> That's who anyway. he was standing up for. <laughs> exactly. He was standing up for the Roman, the famous Roman senator, Dumbledore, uh, or Albinus, um, who had been accused of treason. Theodoric was apparently old and paranoid about Byzantine slash Roman schemes to subjugate the Aryan Germans. He got all defensive about that because, as we said before, he was himself Aryan. Boethius boldly refuted the charges before the king's court, but to no avail. Albinus was executed and Boethius himself was exiled and put under house arrest in the, oh my goodness, Ticinum in modern-day Pavia, an impoverished peasant settlement. So, like, not, not where this boy who grew up in the city of Rome, even the, you know, occupied city of Rome, would have felt at ease. He had been charged with treason and sacrilege, the use of black magic. Sorry, it's not funny, but it's funny. Um, He was executed by strangulation, wow, and then was beaten to death in somewhere around 524, 525, something like that. But there is a chance that given his relatively comfortable imprisonment, he could have received a stay of execution if he had behaved himself like a good boy and said all the right things. He was, however, not allowed to make any public address before his execution. No final words for the crowds. What we do have, though, that remains, is his masterwork, The Consolation of Philosophy. So The Consolation of Philosophy, unlike his other surviving works, is encased in an elaborate literary frame inspired by his own situation of imprisonment as he waits for his execution.
1: Yeah, and I think, like, we should not pass over, like, the the poignancy of this work like the idea of like writing a book of philosophical consolation as you are imprisoned and are awaiting it's unclear if he knew he was gonna be executed or not he probably wasn't like naive to that possibility but yeah i think like that's part of the the mystique of the book that it is trying to use philosophy to like reckon with impending doom and like the sort of the bravery of that the foolhardiness of that so like i think even though like we'll be taking issue with any number of things in boethius's account like there is something that's still like fascinating about that that i think inspires readers has inspired readers through the centuries so i just wanted to sort of like flag that before we start dunking on it (laughs) nice job dude like it's pretty lousy line of reasoning as you're like waiting to be clubbed to death and strangled. Like, okay, it's like, we gotta, we'll got we cut him a little bit of slack. But yeah, so like what this book is, we can also like, we'll probably refer to the protagonist of of this book. Like it's a dialogue basically between uh, someone who's commonly identified with Boethius. We might just sort of refer to him as the prisoner he's the literary version he's the you know like so like it's not as if boethius like had an allegorical vision of lady philosophy himself like this is like a story he's telling and so like we're talking about like the character of boethius versus the writer of boethius and so it gets a little confusing i guess but in any case like all what i mean is he wrote this dialogue it's not like this is my historical report of these psychedelic visions i had about lady philosophy so just it's 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 a work of literature. In any case, the beginning of the book, Boethius, he's bummed out because he's under house arrest and probably going to die. He's lost his social status. He's separated from his family. These are horrible things, right? This this is this is this is a reason to complain. He's trying to comfort himself with the muses of poetry. He's you know, he's sort of leaning back into his classical education and is trying to. Use the arts to soothe his pain, which is like something that people today still think is a good way to deal with pain. Um, in any case, all that comes to an abrupt end when Lady Philosophy, who is gigantic, by the way, in ver- ver- different parts, she's like huge, she like throws the other muses out the door and banishes them. And it's like, you No, know, like, you need my help because this is not going to help you. And like, the first three books or so of the consolation, the whole, the whole consolation, but especially the first few books, Boethius needs to be, be cured of his blindness. Uh, there's different metaphors that she uses. She's like, you're, you're home, like you, you're separated from your home. You're homesick. You've forgotten who you are. There's a lot of like knowledge of self and like, which sounds like sort of like Elijah Muhammad and the nation of Islam. But like, that's also, that's kind of the way it's being described here is like, you've forgotten who you are. So a lot of the, the first few books revolve around lady philosophy and her attempts to persuade the prisoner that he shouldn't be bummed out for being imprisoned and stripped of his rank. This argument revolves around helping him identify his true knowledge of self and separating what is essentially human possessions from external fleeting conditions that are governed by the ever fickle dame fortune. So she's trying to persuade him, in other words, that all the suffering he's endured, he shouldn't actually consider it to be real misfortune or suffering which you're like huh okay but but stay with us for a second so like the fact that Boethius believes himself to be so miserable according to lady philosophy is telling it's it's revealing that he's actually forgotten his platonic philosophical training real happiness according to the prisoner himself after he's been a bit more enlightened is quote what makes a person self-sufficient powerful venerable, famous, and joyful. Okay, all right. This true happiness has to be the opposite of the false phantom happiness that is derived from the senses and pride and social satisfactions of that sort. A happy life, by contrast, is a virtuous, discerning life grounded in divinity. Um, So yeah, that's, so again, you might be like, well, like, what's the difference? Basically, what lady philosophy is trying to school the prisoner in is like, if something can be taken from you, if you can be made, if your if your situation can be changed or affected, like those aren't the real things that you can control. And so like, those aren't the things that you could ever have grounded your happiness in, in the first place. So like, what are those things? Like, that's sort of the question. If I remember right,
0: she carves out a small sort of half exception to that. And that is family. Like the kind of relationships that you create, I mean, close friendships, family; those are, in fact, you know, she kind of admits those are goods that um, you can't take with you, as it were. Yeah, yeah,
1: um, yeah. And when he complains about that, she's like, "Well, they're not suffering. Like, you, you know, they're fine. Fo- they're doing fine. Like, there's, they're, they're going to be okay." And you can sort of see like how the consolation really is not just a genre, but like, you know, is actually. Him trying to console himself a little bit through that. So, yeah. Basically, as he starts to like her, like her, like salves of, of philosophic cleansing start to seep into his damaged philosophy eyes, we come to this account of real happiness. And you pretty quickly from the discussion of real happiness, we're getting into a discussion about God. Because what Lady Philosophy wants to impart to the prisoner is that happiness and goodness and power are all like unified together in oneness that you can't separate separate goodness from happiness. and You can't separate those things from power. And so if you think about those things in the abstract as a kind of unity, we're talking about divinity basically. And this is a divinity that the way human beings become happy and powerful is in participating in this super sensible, totally, you know, we're talking about a plotnist account here. So like this, this invisible, purely rational uh, source of goodness, happiness, virtue, and power. Because it's also about power, this is the source of the governance of the entire universe. So it's not a passive power. It's also something that is is actually arranging the universe in a particular way. And of course, that's important because the prisoner has the question that you would have, like, well, okay, like if this is running the universe, like then why do bad things happen to good people? Well, it's like, we'll see our discussion about fortune, like nothing bad has actually happened to you. It's like, okay. Um, but then he he shifts it a little bit. He's like, well, what about the evil people who have screwed me over and gotten me thrown in jail? So, we you know, we go from the discussion of misfortune to the discussion of evil people. So the important corollary to divine governance of the universe is our old friend the privative account of evil? Evil is a deprivation, so evil has no existence in the world. Instead, God governs the entire universe with the rudder of the good. One of the questions I always have about this when I read the constellation is like, does God is God not even able to see evil if evil doesn't exist on this account? Like, is evil like does God does evil not even register for God? It's a it's a question I I have sometimes.
0: I think that gets at the question of what exactly power means in this account which is something i struggled to understand um when reading this at face value yeah it must have something to do with this kind of um this is probably the wrong terminology but unmoved mover the one um what does that power look like so that's a great place to ask the question Um, another place to ask the question is what does it mean to be powerful in this platonic sense um, when you are about to be it seems that you are so powerless sort of like happy the question of happiness there's a very particular um, ground that's been cordoned off that counts as happiness in this account I think something similar must be true for power otherwise you know as you are imprisoned etc at face value you're powerless etc what does true power look like I could see it I, I could see where you are going with this that the unmoved mover can't see evil because it doesn't have being, but I wonder about that because wouldn't that limit the power um, of the one? Yeah. Well? Like, yeah. To be powerless. That seems bad and, and wrong.
1: I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think it's something we'll, we'll come to if as we sort of try to t- compare this account of providence with other Christian accounts, even though this is the interesting thing. And I, I don't think we've really touched on yet. Like, Boethius is a Nicene Christian, writes uh, like dogmatic works, you know, is is engages with his Christian side. But this book, interestingly enough, has like fleetingly few references to Christianity at all. And if they are, they're like almost kind of like crypto references. And there's a sort of debate about what sense to make of the fact that he opts for a philosophical consolation in this moment. Um, And yeah, that's I think it's a it's a fascinating question.
0: Did you want to talk more about evil people?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's where we're going. Yeah. So basically, like when lady philosophy is like, oh, like everything's for the good and evil isn't real and God makes everything for the best – the prisoner is a little bit baffled by the primitive account of evil at the end of book three. It's this primitive account. That's like starting to creep out of the sewers. He's like, to this point, he's like, yeah, yeah, this makes sense. This makes sense. And she starts talking about how like evil is, is non-being. He's like, wait a second, something stinks here. And he's starting to lose the plot again. He's starting to slip back into his earlier state of despair and forgetfulness. And so in the verse section, because this, the form of this, of this work is pros, um, prosymmetric so like it has like these prose sections that are divided with verse and so like i I think you know if you're like a real latin head like you can you can appreciate the different genres and styles that boethius is like sort of tapping into in these different um interstices of the of the constellation but the one at the end of book three uh lady philosophy is usually is the one who's singing the songs usually and she compares his his new uncertainty to Orpheus the story of Orpheus who you know goes down into Hades to bring back Eurydice and the deal is that he can't look back at she follows him without a word out of Hades but if he looks back then then Hermes drags her back down to Hades and like somehow he, he he just does he looks back to see if she's there and, like, that image of, like, coming so far and then, like, losing faith, losing confidence at the last second is is how she describes, represents his inability to, like, deal with the primitive account of evil.
0: This is a really interesting point to me because it seems like she's accusing him of a lack of faith. I mean, that is what um, Orpheus is meant to rely on when he is told don't look behind you um he is meant to trust in the the gods that are telling him what's going to happen um so when lady philosophy is upset with orpheus in the uh, orpheus (laughs) when lady philosophy is upset with um the prisoner the prisoner (laughs) as it were yes um it seems like she might be accusing him. Like we could say that she might be accusing him of a lack of faith, um, but that seems odd because isn't the whole point of this exercise of philosophy that we can rely on reason rather than faith here? Um, or is there something I'm missing? What do you think, Klaus?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it is a it is a, like a rationalist consolation, but I do th- also think that like. Faith can also be sort of parsed as like perseverance and like you need that virtue of perseverance, whether for a, a like a faith in a religious claim or like perseverance in a philosophic outlook. And so I think like it's it's maybe it's less about like, oh, you're you lost your faith in a kind of like really Christian way and more like you're not as faithfully dependable a person as you should have been Orpheus when you, when you sort of were fickle and look back. So that, that's, I guess, what, what sense I would make of, of that in terms of uh, how to think about philosophy and religion there.
0: Yeah, so, you no, know, that's helpful. And I also don't mean to suggest that <laughs> faith and reason are somehow diametrically opposed. Yeah, You're like, you're not like, well, on, like super
1: 18th century there. Like.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so at the start of book four, uh, Lady Philosophy assures Um, our prisoner that she will restore him to his native land his philosophic patria or fatherland of tranquil contemplation of the divine purpose of the cosmos by convincing him that everyone with authentic power yes that term we were just talking about is good that those who are evil are always punished again in this very specific sense and that the arc of history bends towards justice and um you know, we're starting to feel a little bit MLK Jr. at this point, which, you know, I am not opposed to just two cents
1: there. Klaus, Mm -hmm. what do you think? Yeah, I mean, like, I think we should ask why she insists upon this. And it's worthwhile to look at the argument she makes. And the premise of this argument is that both good and evil people can't help but be drawn to goodness or the good in like this platonic abstract sense that like, we're all we all want good things. And like, it sort of seems a little weird, but like I think it isn't counterintuitive. Like everyone wants to be happy, and everyone wants good stuff. And like that's the idea, you know. Goodness is the the rays of the sun that we want to bask in. It's just that on this account, there are some goody-two-shoes who have the ability to levitate and get closer and closer until they have the most virtuous sunburned you could possibly imagine. It's sort of how I imagine Boethius and Lady Philosophy, very sunburned in the goodness. Sunburned. Oh, Got yeah. it. Good burned. Anyway, we all want goodness per se, but the evil people on this account are hampered in their ability to attain it. They think goodness resides in satisfying their physical appetites, which according to this line of reasoning is not the proper natural faculty for attaining goodness. So there are some stark corollaries that follow. Evil is on this account coded as impotence.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a really important move. Um, this coding evil as impotence in particular. That, again, I'm interested in this question of power and how it relates to this worldview. I'm also trying to track the poetry prose shifts here as best I can <laughs> through a translation, etc. But in the poetic section that immediately follows this particular part, um, we're primarily interpreting prose here. The impotence the impotence gets elaborated in a reflection on tyrants. Um, on the one hand, these baddies are supposedly marked by political power to impose their will on others. That's what a tyrant is, right? Gets to do what they want, etc. But in fact, they are the ones, the tyrants are the ones who are bound. What are they bound by? Thank you for asking. So glad you asked the question. By the chains of their lust and greed, apparently. The real tyrants, it turns out, are the vices themselves. We go like one level further into the allegory in this poetic section and the tyrants are the vices anyway this tight association between evil impotence and tyrants feels super Greek to me the whole philosopher king model and the tyrant it's twisted inverse if you will
1: yeah and I think that helps us see what happiness and power are for Boethius that like for Boethius looks at like say the donald trump's of the world or people who have a lot of money and seem to have a lot of clout and power and from the point of view of boethius or boethius's lady philosophy like these people like are miserable like they like even though they seem to have power and money and all this stuff like they they can't control themselves and they can't actually get what they want and like this is often the the the, the moral of like films like Citizen Kane or, or like the aviator or other movies about like super rich people and these, these sort of like uh, you know, tycoons of business and industry, like, the power and the fame, like it's never, you know, it's like, it's like a Hollywood stereotype. It's never enough, you know? And so I think like that's, uh, except,
0: except for Batman. I don't know why you didn't mention that, but
1: that well Batman's a, Batman is like a deeply traumatized psychopath. I mean, like, like I Batman, <laughs> Batman and happy Batman's not happy. <laughs> okay. All right. Fine. I so, can see that. Let's, just, let's, let's keep that straight. Uh, Batman's not happy <laughs> <laughs> except the Adam West Batman, maybe, but mm-hmm. anyway, so I think, like we were saying, like po- like be- having power, like it's like the rich person, the rich like evil <laughs> Trumpian villain, like seems to have a lot of power, but f- like uh, in this worldview, like fortune wheels, you know, you know, like. Um, Pat Sajak and, and Vanna White like spin the wheel and suddenly you don't have any power. And then like, what do you have any, have any control over? Like things can change really fast and like you have no control over yourself. You're like given to these appetites, you're given to like questing for these power. You have like no self-sufficiency. And so like, even though it does seem like power seems like very much cordoned off and shrunken in this version, like I you can sort of see like what power means, even if it does seem like, a little bit more humble. It means like sort of like, being in touch with like the actual things that will make you a good person, it will make you happy, and you know, and it's like very moralizing, but like, yeah, that's that's the way it is. Do you think mean, that, that makes sense? Like,
0: yeah, I've been holding off on comparisons to uh kind of less Greek influenced forms of early Christianity, but I think here's a point where we can um look at the New Testament accounts of what the kingdom of God is and certainly see a lot of similarities and why it was not that hard to kind of marry some of the Neoplatonic ideas, Greek ideas into um, what was already a a text written literally in Greek. So yes. Right. Anyway. um, But yeah, like
1: in the whole, like the, the prince of this world, like the devil doesn't really appear in the constellation of philosophy. We do have demons. We'll get to them. And we, and the the sort of main tie in is evil people, which we're sort of, you know, the demonized, I guess, but yeah, like a world where, like, in the new, in Paul's New Testament world, like the prince of this world is sort of this like illusory monarch who's like a fake. Like the power of the world is like kind of fake and and or like bogus in some way. And I, yeah, that does sort of like, like you can see the the crossover appeal with this kind of Neoplatonism. But uh, I think like w- where where there might be a difference is in the early new testament vision and the the patristic vision like satan does have power it's just not lasting and so from like the perspective of this sort of boethius with this neoplatonist hat on like because it's not lasting and because it's temporary it's not real and so evil remains coded as impotence and lady philosophy asks us why evil people abandon virtue the right path to god like or, or the good like why you know why is it that they actually can't like get what they want? Like, what is the problem? Uh, Is, is the problem that they're, that they're like ignorant of what the good is, or are they actually aware of the good, but are distracted by other things like lust or is the abandonment of the path to the good deliberate, which seems like the kind of satanic, the satanic gambit. Mm -hmm. If so, she writes, or she says the evil Cease not to just be powerful, but to exist at all. For people who abandon the goal, which all existing things have in common, likewise cease to exist. So by rejecting the good, you, you've you actually like thrown yourself out of being. Which is the worst theme park ever. Being the worst theme park ever. You've been expelled. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm going to
0: go back to this sort of... Um, competing fiddles thing that we are doing um, you're welcome everyone for that, is that deliverance run, run, run.
1: is that the theme for deliverance that um,
0: that was what that was was free um, you're welcome everyone it was free you didn't have to pay for that um, particular performance so uh, <laughs> about this question of um, privative evil i just want to also point out that we we do have in the prologue to the Gospel of John um, interpretations of it, at least, where nothing was created outside of God, which forms part of the basis for evil not having being in Christian thought. I, think, I do think that this um, question of the devil having existence or not and being is also grounded in, in certain very particular moments in um, New Testament texts, the end. Um, okay, back to the, the, the quote you read about um, that people who choose to be bad, you know, the baddies, um, kind of lose their existence, they cease to exist. So the mm-hmm. claim being put forward is a key to the prisoner's tranquility, right? Um, it's supposed to be the force of this consolation is that evil people don't really exist but is philosophy kind of covering her eyes and saying to these baddies of the universe, I can't see you. I can't see you. (laughs) You're not real. I mean, it feels like we're like playing with your
1: kids Klaus. here at this point. Yeah. Yeah. it's, It's like, yeah, it does feel like, are you just like sticking your head in the sand? Like, is that what it's like? It's like, you know, or just like, it's like the worst semantics, like, pedantic thing ever it's like well like that feels like you're suffering but you're not really suffering uh, a lot of ancient philosophy can feel that way sometimes <laughs> <laughs> anyway. uh, but yeah like so right the reality of evil is is hard to pin down i think it's less of a statement of like this is an illusion but more of a statement about the essence or mes- metaphysical reality of the evil person so it's not saying like oh like evil is just like this hologram it's it's saying something about like the core of their being and you might ask well what are the stakes of that like you know you know like what like does that even really matter but yeah right there's some sort of ultimate truth claim um,
0: against like that's pitted against the realities of this world again it's just sounding very (laughs) very jesusy to me very kingdom of god sayings to me at this point um, so I guess if it looks like privative evil, if it smells like
1: privative evil. It's probably just a sign that someone needs a shower anyway. <laughs> you, you know, like it smells like teen privative evil. It's, it's <laughs> <new Nirvana> hit. <laughs> anyway, philosophy compares the evil person to a corpse, hence the smell. And the good smell. person is thus a living, healthy person. This is still a corpse that has power, though. <laughs> oh, my gosh, this gets so weird.
0: So are you telling me that evil people are essentially flesh-eating zombies? Is that what Boethius is saying here? I don't know. But the claim should probably be a pause. Emphatically, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's a yes. Okay. <laughs> so this should give us pause. She does mm-hmm. not deny, that is Lady Philosophy, does not deny that evil zombies lack power. There's power here. Clearly, the prisoner is all locked up. So there's some reality, some admission that this um, illusory evil that has no existence well you still have to deal with it it still has effects in this world um, that we can't deny Um, so these zombies and their power paradoxically stems from their weakness that's the fatal flaw in what we might call their power but she probably wouldn't say is power Um, they affect change in the world through their inability to get what it is they really want so here, one could be forgiven for asking how much of a difference this really makes for people who are actually suffering, as Klaus already pointed to. Um, but does the statement have its moment of truth, would you say, Klaus?
1: I think like, it, perhaps it does in the sense that violence is begotten by violence, that unresolved trauma contributes to cycles of violence. I, I think an idea that is pretty familiar to a lot of people now, that there's like cycles of evil, cycles of abuse. People who victimize others are often themselves victims prior to that. And so this idea, which Lady Philosophy gets from Plato, is that evil people are constantly frustrated and never actually happy. Sort of a set of ideas we'll see, again, with Dante. I, I, we, we always talk about Dante, and someday we'll actually talk about him for real. But And maybe that's all true, that like evil people are never actually happy. But that doesn't stop them from doing real harm. So I'm not ultimately sure how helpful the claim about this evil person lacking bili- Lacking being really is. What do you think?
0: This is the question I think um, for me in this text. But I can't I can't help but wonder if this particular move is some is something of a cop out to define happiness in such a restricted sense. Um, but for me, part of that may just be semantics. Weirdly, I think if we had a translation where happiness was replaced with joy, I think I would take a really different. Attitude toward it, and that's probably just my Christianness showing up here. Um, that that parsing is really usual for us when we define happiness against the world. We usually use the word joy, something that can sort of last you through um, a very difficult time when you're maybe you know on death row, as he is, for example. Um, whereas happiness, we usually use to describe something that's fleeting. Um, but. This move that he makes allows, or that she makes, allows philosophy to so easily dismiss ill-gotten gain, which seems so real, um, as well as those who seek ill-gotten gain. Um, And the claim is, of course, that um, those people, evil people, have no being. And it's one thing to argue, sort of from a very abstract sense, that evil has no being, but it takes a certain, gumption shall we say to maintain that view in the face of the seemingly real lifestyles that the morally feckless seem not only to enjoy klaus but to flaunt that's where it gets i think really hard to maintain this
1: well for me it's also hard like to say like okay like evil is non-being and then to say that non-being is personified in certain kinds of people who are evil And that's like that predication of a a thing that is supposed to be non, like a non, like an absence, I find a little strange. And so like the the sort of the effort to like make the privative account of evil at once, like sort of this like vague cosmic mildew that is lack instead of being, but then to like then twist that into like an agent, like, you know, evil people. I, you know, it's it's and it's something I think she'll she'll try to she'll try to address uh, in in the next section, um, and so like an interesting point is that Lady Philosophy tries to head off this concern that evil people do serious damage to innocents. That like oh like we keep we keep looking at the victims and the victims, and I think this is actually another interesting like potential radical moment in the text. A, a, a short moment, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, one that that's worth taking seriously. One of the central claims of this dialogue is that the virtuous person, as I've said before, can't actually be harmed through violence inflicted upon them or their sort of external, their external goods or body or, or reputation or things like that. Uh, um, so even if wickedness can work on those things, by definition, it can't do anything to the good and the good person who exists on a higher ontological level. So like, these people who Boethius and Lady Philosophy want to sort of speak about as being like 'er ne'er-do-wells or evil-doers, they can't, according to this theory, they can't actually hurt the good person. And it also seeks to like minimize the the damage they do to maybe people who are maybe a a bit more neutral morally.
0: So let's spell this out a little bit more with... um... A quote from Lady Philosophy, since goodness alone can raise a person above the rank of human, it must follow that wickedness deservedly imposes subhuman status on those whom it has dislodged from the human condition. Whew, that's heavy. So authentically virtuous people have been invisibly transfigured into gods via participation, sure uh they're not saying that the virtuous person becomes some new olympian that's not really it but rather that she gets to be divine through participation in this higher status um but what about evil people class this seems to have some very weird implications
1: yeah but before the interest before like the sort of like radical moment there's it gets very Mm -hmm. it gets very dark uh which I, i think is one of the interesting things about the constellation well you have these moments where it's like oh like that's there's something to that and then you'll be like wow that's super reactionary (laughs) so this is the super reactionary part so Mm -hmm. if these people are rendered subhuman uh they are comparable to like savage beasts on lady philosophy's reading and this is this is even though it's even though this itself is evil it's one of my favorite quotes in the whole thing a man who in seizing the possessions of others is consumed by greed and is comparable to a wolf the aggressive and restless man who devotes his tongue to disputes can be considered a dog. The underhanded plotter who rejoices in stealthy theft can be likened to young foxes. Young foxes. Dude, watch out for those young foxes. They are causing trouble. Okay, but really, you probably should. Because (laughs) the young foxes,
0: and I wonder if this is, so foxes are way beyond just sort of um, Hebrew or Christian scriptures, like, Obviously, but the little foxes or the young foxes to me sounds like perhaps um, a coded reference to yeah, Song of Songs. Words. Yeah, to Song of Songs two fifteen. I might be stretching here, but um, th- in, in that verse, you hear, "Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom."
1: Catch us the foxes, the little, little foxes. <laughs> <It's> so funny,
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> <It's> a- <laughs> And like the it's Song of Songs, like everything else, there's all this erotic love poetry going on, and then we have this like awkward moment. But uh, one of my favorite, you know, um, medieval preachers, Bernard of Clairvaux, makes the most of this. Um, he's he's writing a whole series of sermons on the Song of Songs, and when he gets to this verse, he writes not one, not two, not three, but four. Ser- full sermons on this verse he is oh my loki Lord. obsessed here and his sort of most powerful um application of this idea is that the foxes are heretics themselves as he writes um and and that you know he makes lots and lots and lots of hay around what it means to that the, the foxes should be taken rather than driven away, et cetera. Um, basically getting around to, you should try and convert these folks uh, back to Orthodox Christianity because they're
1: bad and heretics and they're bad, that's bad, like, bad. That's like Augustine, like compel them to enter. Like Exactly. Like, <laughs> get them get them back into the mother church and beat yes. them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Um, it presents a really, I mean, to be a little more sympathetic, it presents a really challenging uh, problem for Bernard, this idea of Heretics who share some of the Christian faith but get certain things wrong, 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 wrong. It's like it's so much easier to be mean to your family members than it is to be mean to strangers, I think. But anyway, um, he's not the only one who uses this image. Or a bunch of other medieval preachers, um, especially in the 13th century. Um, so The scholarship of Beverly Maine Kinsley is your place to go if you're interested in learning more about that. But some to name drop a little bit. um, Goodness, who else? There's Peter of Castelnau, there's um, Elina of Roamont and a bunch of others who really enjoy taking this particular verse from Song of Songs and applying it to heretics. They're so bad. But I mean, who doesn't love a good heretic, right, Klaus? I mean, we're here to, to I just, like who talk Who doesn't heresy. love
1: Who doesn't love Christian hermeneutics where it's like, well, there's a symbol here. What could it mean? Is it Jesus? No. Is it the heretics? Yes. Is it, yes, it's her- it is heretics, definitely heretics. the yes. heretics. <laughs> it's that's what it's got to be. Um, so yep. I, I was, you know, it's, it's 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 you know, you don't have too many strikes. It's 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 not too many options. Um, but yeah, other other great animal comparisons from Boethius. The man of ungovernable temper who roars his head off can be regarded as having a lion's disposition. If you're a coward, you're like a white-tailed deer. The idle person's a donkey. The fickle, capricious person—none of us here, I'm sure—is no different from the birds.
0: And you know these comparisons can sound quite familiar, but it seems almost as if Lady Philosophy wants to take them literally. Um, at and the verse at the end of this section invokes the example of Circe turning Odysseus's crew into pigs with poisoned wine. So it's weird. These vice comparisons are to be taken literally. But like the divinity of the good person, this animality that we're speaking of here is not born by the skin, but by the soul. Um, So that's where the kind of truth claim of these turning people into animals comes through. We're talking about their souls, but it is real. So let's take a second to talk about how evil dehumanizes and what sort of impact that has.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it might sound from all this like lady philosophy is using this argument of non-being and the animality of vicious people to demonize evil people. And maybe demonize itself seems redundant since demons are evil non-beings, even in the Orthodox Christian argumentation. But the discussion takes an interesting twist here. And this is sort of the radical moment. We go from like really like re- kind of regressive, like dehumanization of social deviation to something, an interesting argument. Lady philosophy ends up claiming that it's irrational for wise people to hate the evil people. In fact, they are to pity them and even seek their remediation. Convert to help them, the, Klaus. You have to convert yeah, them exactly. back to... <laughs> you know, yeah, like hate the sin, not the sinner. It sort of does sound like that now that you... yeah. yeah. You know, like you make that point. The healthy, though, are not supposed to hate the sick. And we have this comparison to disease. It's like, it's about, it isn't about, suddenly, and this, 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 the dialogue can be so moralizing. And suddenly it's like, well, it, it takes a different tack. So
0: another place she takes us rhetorically is to a utopian world in which criminals have no need of defense attorneys. It's going to get really weird. So buckle your seatbelts, y'all. This is because everyone in this ideal situation would understand that the offender is more damaged than the victim. And here it's probably, uh, we we might stop to say that Boethius' vision seems to be the worst dreams come true for law and order conservatives. So you might have a cop saying, oh, poor baby, you committed a triple homicide. Maybe you need a nap. But Lady Philosophy is committing to the bit. The idea that good people can't really be harmed by bad people. It's just not possible in this worldview. And so these elaborations on a fantastic legal system follow directly from that. And guess what? If you don't get it, if it seems weird, lady philosophy will not hesitate to inform you. You're too accustomed to looking at the filth of normal experience while she's got her eyes trained on the stars of philosophical clarity.
1: Just deal with it. Yeah, I guess I guess I'll have to start dealing with it. So it, it seems we, we talk about Plato a little bit. It seems like a nice allegory of the caves reference, where like the enlightened person has emerged from the subterranean darkness of common opinion and is gazing. Is is Donald Trump style just staring right at the eclipse sun, just like burning their corneas off, et cetera? Um, keep playing the hits, you know. Uh, but the prisoner is still. The prisoner is a is, is slow learner here, <laughs> still uneasy <laughs> about the age-old question of why do bad things happen to good people, especially if the whole universe is being governed by perfect divine providence. The first books of the Constellation of Philosophy focus on Dame Fortune, who by turns blesses and torments humans through reversals in external goods, reputation, friends, glamour, relevancy, social media likes, rank, etc., the heart of the lesson in the section, uh, the first part of the book is to explain that adverse fortune is actually good for the human being. It gives you character, son. It dissolves falsehood. It tells you how it really is. It's, you know, it's again, a kind of Hollywood cliche. It's like, you know who your real friends are when you've been, when you, when you blew it all in Vegas or whatever. (laughs) So we've been building up to this discussion of theodicy of like, why do bad things happen to good people? And, Lady philosophy stops talking about fortune, though, and, and switches to this dichotomy between fate and providence. Always always love a good switch up, always love a good dichotomy. What's going on with that dichotomy?
0: Yeah, we, we got to have a good distinction, or does it really count as Greek philosophy, right? So providence is presented as the unchanging, some might say even stagnant, perspective of <laughs> divinity, right? This is the unmoved mover situation. Uh, creation, taken in with a single infallible glance of the holy eyeball. Fate, on the other hand, is all of the moving parts of the divine engine, um, the kind of administrator, if you will, of the, of the divine will. Um, and the the parts of the divine engine, these moving parts I mentioned, they at least seem to be moving to us since we are not spectating history in the cosmos from the vantage point of eternity. So it looks like it's moving. This is of interest to us because fate is the domain of demons, yes, and other middle spirits, um, daimonis, right, the middlemen of heaven and earth. Uh, yeah, administrators. I just keep going back to administrators, don't I? Um, this is what Lady Lady Philosophy says about it. The work of fate may be performed by divine spirits, which are the handmaids, so to speak, of providence, or else the chain of fate may be knitted together by the world soul, or by the obedience of the whole of nature, or by the motions of the stars of heaven, or by the powers of angels, or by the diverse skills of demons, or by some or all of these. I, I'm going to say there are a lot of ors in this particular part, Klaus. That is my I comment. But it, it seems like she is not super
1: specific on which of these claims might be the right one. I know. She's sort of like, yeah, just circle anyone that you may feel more comfortable with. If you want to call it dumb luck, if you want to call it demonic possession, like whatever you want. But yeah, <laughs> the good news is we're back with the demons. The endnotes of the book I was reading indicate that Boethius is being influenced here by Plotinus, Porphyry, possibly Proclus. So Boethius is basking in his Neoplatonist bona fides, and it's interesting for us since the Neoplatonists we discussed last episode were super anti-Christian. But just a few centuries later, not a lot, a time later, Boethius, a Christian, can simply assume this Neoplatonic framework into his worldview. It's interesting how he doesn't really seem to blend them, though. Like there, there is, there isn't like a doctrinal like like sort of knitting together of Christianity and Neoplatonism. Some commentators look at the genre of the consolation, the consolation of philosophy, as a as a Menopean satire. That's its genre. And it's perhaps a satire on the limitations of Neoplatonic philosophy. So like as if this whole thing is a giant bit, it's all kind of sarcastic and ironic. I don't know about that. I mean, not sure. I mean, again, we, as we say... As good humanities, former grad students, like intention, the intention of the author is is not the thing, you know, so like, it is true that like, he could be, I mean, like, it's not like it's a totally crazy thing to say, but um, I think I want to sort of take its surface claim seriously for the time being. The one direct reference to biblical theology in, and this is, I was reading, I was reading one author who's writing about this. I think there are a few, there's not just one, but the one of them is in book three, uh, book three, uh, line 12, where lady philosophy seems to quote from the book of wisdom saying, it is the highest good that rules all things strongly and disposes them sweetly. This is just perhaps that the knowing reader is being invited to supply some missing biblical content to the abstract god presented in the consolation. So it's like this is a model and like if you are in the know, like you can you can sort of fill in the gaps here with things that you already know.
0: Okay, so speaking of theodicy that you mentioned, you know, why do bad things happen? One question that I think is fair to ask of this text is how much of a consolation it really supplies. By the end of book four, Lady Philosophy assures the prisoner that if you're virtuous, there's no such thing as bad fortune. She writes, or she says, perhaps, all fortune, which seems harsh, is actually preparing you to conquer the stars with your strengthened virtue. And I think the concern of the anti-bootstrapping generations of the 21st century, yes, can I get an amen, is how persuasive the argument is that goes something like this. If you're good, nothing bad can really happen to you. And you see this across ancient philosophy. Boethius was influenced clearly by the Stoics um, to a similar degree as he was by the um, Neoplatonic philosophers, thinkers.
1: So not to be too flippant about this, but is this like a massive cope on Boethius' part or is it the copium of the masses? It seems easy to dismiss it with schools of thought informed by the idea of trauma and vulnerability. But I guess like we keep asking this question, is there a moment of truth in any of this, this, this stuff?
0: So you might wonder if this view is satirizing non-Christian philosophic schools. Certainly some scholars have put forward that view. Like Lady Philosophy's presentation, a lot of Christianity will categorize suffering under the heading of education rich, spiritually deepening tribulation. But there is, I think, a baseline acknowledgement in this tradition that horrible things can happen to you. See, for example, the passion. So could this be a display of the limits of philosophy in some sense? Maybe not hard satire, but we need to ask the question. As if Boethius, as he awaited execution, was building up the best argument for philosophic tranquility, trying to make it as convincing as possible, realizing it might not be fully convincing, but taking some satisfaction in the idea that he has this outer wall of protection. And inside it, he has a store of strength, i.e. Christianity, that he hasn't even tapped into yet.
1: Yeah, and I think like the reason I keep asking about like the moment of truth, or like the possible reconciliations, is like it's just like hard not to take seriously this work in its context, and and in like the 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 fact that Boethius, like Thomas More, will do like many centuries later, is like writing to like prepare himself to die. The part that seems like problematic is like the part that like if you can be affected, if you can be hurt, if you can be damaged, then you are not a real being. Like that's like a, that's like a pretty. That's a pretty tall hurdle to get past if, to try to like i think to work with right now what do you think
0: <laughs> yeah i would at least want to try and adjust the claim and say well maybe you participate in non-being i think as a christian i i think i do buy into that to a certain mm-hmm. extent um but the participation is key uh, in understanding that because it does it never robs someone of the divine image I think that you can hold a view that looks like that. And that's not what we see here. And so I think that that's a good, that's a worthy critique. Like what, what does it do to you as a human agent to um, conceptualize someone else as no longer a fully human? I think that does bad things to you.
1: Yeah. And um, like they do imagine like lady philosophy does like present like the, her fantasy criminal justice system as like, is like therapy for the evildoers, the ne'er-do-wells, you know, uh, the zombies, that you can make some sort of positive impact through education and rehabilitation. But, like, there is this, like, ontological hierarchy between the goodies and the baddies, and the baddies are, like, subhuman. And, like, that's a way of, like, ducking the fact that, like, on, like, by these accounts, in terms of, like, being affected by things that happen to you, like, we're all subhuman and not totally real. According to the, according to the principles laid out here, like if you are being affected, if you are being hurt, like you either are mistaken on this argument or you really are less than human. And I think like that's, I think like maybe the, the more interesting thing to come out of it would be like, oh, like maybe we're all like all of us are, 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 are being rendered subhuman in like a way that I think like you were sort of pointing at. Right, which feels again from
0: our perspective like a super important thing to acknowledge to make any of this work in the 21st century at least. Which brings me to this idea of reception history in this text. We've been worrying a little bit about the error of speculating on authorial intention. Um, But one way to kind of get around that is to think about genre um, and about reception. So to what extent is is this, a Manipian satire if it is what are the implications of reading it that way um, and have people in fact taken it in that light and what is what have been the outcomes of that um, as opposed to reading this as a kind of full-throated declaration of the author's philosophy and then which of course raises questions about how do we take this how might that fit with you know a believing Christian what does it mean to dedicate your final text to um to dedicate a final text to philosophy, which was, of course, his profession, um, but to leave out this important part of how he understands himself in relation to the cosmos.
1: So book five, getting into the, the end of it, the end of things here, book five grapples with that persistent preoccupation of metaphysicians, ethicists, theists, that is the problem of free will and divine providence. If we assume that people can be good, that it seems to imply a a standard of freedom or a condition of being able to make the right choice so the solution that lady philosophy offers is to understand providence as the god's eye view that surveys everything that is and will be and ever was in a single glance this seeing that is a surveying of what is set before it operates according to a spatial logic or at least that's the kind of comparison that lady philosophy makes it's like we human beings like the universe seems to be moving. History seems to be moving. That's because we are situated in such a way that we can't see the whole. And the idea of God is God sees everything at once. So it's like seeing everything as a place, not as a timeline of causes and effects. And so Lady Philosophy thinks that this saves human free will, without which the premise of the imperviousness of the virtual person, virtuous person has little meaning. This foreknowledge doesn't cause our decisions. This is the tricky part. The fact that God sees it all at once is supposed to not have caused our decisions, our free will. It seems more passive. That is the the, the the divine expectation, even if everything is also supposed to operate according to divine governance. So it's like a little tricky. Like God's just sort of looking at it. But somehow this looking is part of the operation of governing. Unclear. Everything God sees in this eternal glance has to happen by necessity because everything God sees is there. It's static. It's ne- it's necessary because it's just all there. This is how Lady Philosophy explains how all this works with providence and free will. Quote, God sees in the present the future events which proceed from free choice. So these things become necessary as related to God's observation of them. Through the condition of his divine knowledge, but considered in themselves, they do not. To- they do not forfeit the total freedom of their nature. That's a really tricky claim to
0: make. I think. here.
1: Yeah. Uh, like I wonder
0: how how convincing this has been to to previous readers. For me, it feels like we have sacrificed a really robust notion of free will in the interest of preserving um, certain characteristics of God, um, namely God's foreknowledge of everything, God's relationship to time. And time is something I do want to go into just a little bit more here. This God's eye view that you have um, described for us, Klaus, from the text, which I agree relies on a spatial metaphor, is only made possible by a relation to time. Consider Lady Philosophy's definition of eternity. That which grasps and possesses the entire fullness of a life that has no end at one and the same time is rightly held to be eternal. Ergo, God is eternal and the world is merely perpetual. And this definitely smells a little bit teen spirit, heretical, but I'm going to allow it. Having a perpetual world sounds really close to matter existing forever. And of course, the only thing that's truly eternal is God. Anyway, this is what sets apart divine foreknowledge from any other kind, a kind of special divine temporality that escapes the pesky problems of causality that Lady Philosophy tries with mixed success to dance around.
1: Yeah, there's some trickiness here. You have to assume the superior vantage point of the God's eye view, and then you have to perform the following analogy. The divine perspective is likened to our rational faculty, which in good platonic fashion lady philosophy assumes exists in a hierarchical relationship to our imaginations and our senses. This is, you see this a lot in like Republic book seven or book six rather, for this divided line hierarchy of the faculties. So God's understanding is like, not identical to, is like our reason because it is superior to our reason in the same way our reason is superior to our imaginations. So the analogy serves to justify an ontological and epistemological gap between humanity and divinity like a gap of being like we're just we're different kinds of beings and a gap of of epistemology or, or of knowledge the kinds of knowledge we can each have that that knowledge is that knowledge gap is funded on the fact that we are of just a different different being this assumed inability of our rationality to grasp divine providence could very well end up being a philosophic defense of faith-derived theodicy. Like, it almost does sound like uh, making room for, for religious faith claims in almost like a critical philosophical kind of way. What are our final thoughts here that we want to um, go well, off on? I will say that like these, this this sort of framing of providence versus fate, like does also seem to re- relate to the problem of like real happiness and power versus fake happiness and power. Like you're more happy, you're you're at your most happy and your most powerful in like this sort of s- static position of God. Like it's not through like running around and trying to acquire and trying to and trying to like fill your senses to the max. It's like in this like distance and this kind of I don't know what to say. Like like through contemplation. Like it, mm-hmm. it's it's yeah. it's being free and like being still. Like there's a there's an I think there's a you know. And so like for when when Lady Philosophy explains providence and the fates. Providence is like the is like the, the hub or like the, the axle of the wheel. Like everything's moving around it, but it seems to be still. And there's like, there's like this kind of paradox of like everything emanates from this, everything that moves emanates from this stillness. But like being free and powerful is getting yourself as approximated and as adjusted and as in harmony with that central, that central like, like, quiet and stillness and 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 like self-unity that really does make it the, the the sort of neoplatonic flavor really comes out in that
0: i think that's right um i would say though that that distance that we're talking about is also in conversation right this is a dialogue lady philosophy is talking to boethius even if in this kind of literary fictive imaginative mode and that to me implies that This worldview is also, if it is, if it does feel cold and distant and disengaged from the world, there is also a pedagogical strain in it that does lend itself to um, being shared, a way to reframe the world and to deal with, even if it doesn't always come across as particularly effective, a way to deal with the seeming injustices of the world um problems like theodicy in what must have been a super acute expression of that problem i.e sitting on death row for something that that wasn't wrong um yeah. that you did
1: yeah I, I i have one question for you i think that we can wrap up with the one thing i want to add before i get to the question is this one of the strangest things i find about the consolation of philosophy and i i teach this i teach this book a lot actually but like a lot of it, as you were saying, is a dialogue. It's a lot of back and forth, and sometimes it's kind of like a Socratic dialogue, where like Socrates' his partner just like yeah. sort of asks dumb questions. It, this, I think the prisoner is actually does have more substantive things to say. Like this is a, this is a serious problem, right? You know, you're 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 gonna die, and like nothing seems fair, and so like he does have voice in those moments to express that. But like as Lady Philosophy is discussing, like the true relation the the, the the true like possibility of free will in like total divine necess- like necessary prop like providential foreknowledge and whatever like Boethius the prisoner stops talking like four or five pages from the end of the book and like when you're thinking about it as like his like last like work it is strange it's it's to me it's very striking that like he just like drops off and like lady philosophy like he doesn't he doesn't get the last word in his last word right there's a he he doesn't you know it's like paradoxical like he doesn't get the last word in the last the last his like sort of last written testament and I, i find that eerie
0: yeah i found it confusing um because it's it's written as many translations of these these texts are written when you see something like a platonic dialogue you don't get sort of um Character one, colon, and then what they say. Character two, colon. And so you're always trying to sort of sort out, usually by they're indicated by paragraphs, these like changes in speaker, and you're meant to imply them. I literally got confused when I was reading the end and I was like, well, what wait, where's but um, and so that that was my first experience of of that abrupt change, the dropping out of one voice in the dialogue. So one way of thinking of, the, of that, of course, is reframing who's who. Um, as we as we think through the the prisoner as a literary character, Lady Philosophy, and both Etheus, the author, um, do we have instead of a dropping out of a character of like a coming together mm, of yeah. the the author with the voice of Lady Philosophy, a kind of shift there that accounts for an absence that's more of a unification, which would to me feel super Greek in a way. We have that unity that's coming through yeah. um, and a kind of teacher uh, student becoming the teacher moment um i think that's the best i can do that's class. that's that's
1: that's a, that's a pretty that's like a nicely optimistic reading of it yeah and i think that, that makes sense um i think that makes that makes good sense my last question to round out this is like do you see any place for the devil in this account of evil that lady philosophy gives is is the devil like their incognito in this in this story or not at, or not at all
0: That's a fantastic question. Um, I think the devil struggles to have, we pointed to this earlier in our conversation. It would be hard to posit a devil in this universe given the strength of the way that lady philosophy claims that evil has no being. I think that that precludes the kind of appearance of a robust devil. Um, There's no sort of Christian notion of time no equivalent to that, where there's this sort of, uh, you have these different epochs, and one in which, um, you know, the incarnation, the resurrection has already happened, but then not yet of a an eschaton, um, which allows for Christian theologians to posit and, and to grapple with the question of the devil seeming to be in charge, the prince of this world problem. I don't see that here. And lacking that, it's sort of what's the vehicle to imagine an incarnation of evil. I mean, there, is, there are some mechanisms because we have um, that uh, mode of participation we've talked about already. One can participate in the good. One can participate um, then in evil, but can you have like a full incarnation of evil? I, I don't see where you could carve that out. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think that, well, for me, what's, what's, what's striking is that like you said like versus the like Christian accounts we've looked at like origin Augustine like many of these people do have a primitive account of evil but I think what you're right is that there isn't this drama of history in this account like it's more a focus on the eternal the eternal gaze at the static like creation as a static thing and and like you don't have like the drama of redemption you know, like, and so I think you're right in the sense like there isn't like a dramatic personage like that need for like a bad guy to overcome at the end. The place where I do see a possibility for for someone like the like the devil, like the sort of satanic rebel, um, is like in Lady Philosophy's like questions about who the evil person is, uh, like. At one point, she's like, "Are they a person who's just ignorant of the good? Are they aware of the good but are distracted by other things, or did they, de- or did they do it deliberately?" And I think that that sort of deliberate, the deliberate abandonment of the good, which she then writes or says she didn't write anything; she was an allegory. What she says, <laughs> <laughs> that, like they cease not just to be powerful but to exist at all. That this like the satanic figure is the figure potentially who deliberately just says, fuck it. And like, but it's like satanic suicide. It's like, they say, fuck it. And then like, they, then they Thelma and Louise it off into the grand Canyon. Like that's what I, that's for me. Like if there is a way to look at the devil, it's like, it's like that here.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's right. Otherwise this whole, you know, unmoved mover situation just, you can't have the triumph at the end because of the view of the much stronger kind of view of eternality, et cetera. Yeah, it just doesn't let you do the same kind of devil. But that doesn't mean we don't have intriguing questions about what it looks like, what true evil looks like and how people participate in it. So I'm glad that we took our devil lens to this text. feels like it was useful. Always. So Klaus, it looks like we are now having moved from... Our Neoplatonic thinkers through Boethius. It feels like we're now ready to talk about pseudo Dionysius, and I, for one, am super excited and looking forward to it. Um, what do you think? Are you? Do you think I'm, we're ready? I'm,
1: I, you know, for me, like even though we're still like pretty solidly in late antiquity with with Boethius and pseudo Dionysius, I do like feel the the, the Middle Ages beckoning. I, I feel I feel like we are transitioning from the materials that have preoccupied us for for years now into a different kind of historical moment um, and that periodization is arbitrary but like it's just I'm starting to see like the the sort of uh, the first fruits of medieval theology here well I for one
0: am super excited as a card-carrying medievalist I can't yeah wait. I'm excited so, too because like it's, 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 it. It,
1: if someone knows what they're doing that would be great um, <laughs> between the two of us Amazing. Okay, everyone. Well, thanks for listening. See you next
0: time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Ward, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.